The song we just sang asks the question, who can stop the Lord Almighty? And we find the answer to that question. Nothing is too difficult for the Lord. We turn to Jeremiah chapter 32. I'm going to read verses 6 through 10 as we begin today. Jeremiah chapter 32 and reading verses 6 through 10. And Jeremiah said, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, Behold, Hanamel, the son of Shalom, your uncle, is coming to you, saying, Buy for yourself my field, which is in Anathoth, for you have the right of redemption to buy it. Then Hanamel, my uncle's son, came to me in the court of the guard, according to the word of the Lord, and said to me, Buy my field, please, that is in Anathoth, which is in the land of Benjamin, for you have the right of possession. And the redemption is yours. Buy it for yourself. Then I knew that this was the word of the Lord. I bought the field which was at Anathoth from Hanamel, my uncle's son, and I weighed out the silver for him, 17 shekels of silver. I signed and sealed the deed and called in witnesses and weighed out the silver on the scale. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you today that there is nothing that is too difficult for you. You are the God who has made all things. You're the God who rules the nations of the world. You're the one that controls nature. You're the one that changes hearts and lives. And Father, we worship you today. We praise you for your majesty, your glory, your power, your mercy, your grace. Father, I pray now that you would take the word we have just read, apply it to our lives today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you plan on buying a piece of property, there is a real estate principle that you really need to keep in mind. It's called the principle of anticipation. If you've never heard of that, what this means is that the value of a property is impacted by the expectation of a future event. For example, if the, if the government is planning on putting a highway through the living room of a house that you plan on buying, that would be a future event that would change the value of that property. And if I was your realtor, I would say, I don't think you should buy that, right? That would not be a very wise investment. That principle really comes into play in the life of Jeremiah when his cousin, Hanamel, gives him the opportunity to buy a field that he owns. The value of the field would have been significantly impacted by that principle because the army of the Babylonian king, Nebuchadnezzar, was about to capture the city of Jerusalem. Verse 2 of Jeremiah 32 says, At that time, the army of the king of Babylon was besieging Jerusalem. Now, who in their right mind would buy that piece of property while the army of King Nebuchadnezzar was about to take the land. Would you buy that? Would you say, yeah, thank you so much. So here comes along then the the cousin of Jeremiah. Have I got a deal for you? (laughs) You've always been my favorite cousin, and I want to give you the opportunity of a lifetime. You've got the first chance to buy my field. What would you do? 
Yeah, right. <laughs> you can hear the army about to besiege the city, and here comes your cousin and says, I've got a deal for you. I think most people would run from that, say, there is no way that I'm going to buy that field. Guess what Jeremiah did? He bought the field. And you know why he bought the field? Verse 15 says that God had promised that houses and fields and vineyards will again be sold in the land. And if you look at verse 17, you will see why Jeremiah believed that what God said was true. And here's really the key to this whole passage of Scripture, verse 17. Uh, Jeremiah says, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too difficult for you. God made a promise to Jeremiah. He said, lands and fields will be sold here again. And Jeremiah says, okay, God, I trust you. I believe you because there's nothing that is too difficult for you. Do you believe that? Do you believe that there is nothing that is too difficult for God? That's a principle, that's a truth that God wants us to lay hold of because you find that truth almost everywhere in Scripture. Let me give you some examples. Genesis 18:14. the Lord came to Abraham and he asked the question, is anything too hard for the Lord? And then he says, at the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year and Sarah will have a son. Really? Here is this 90-year-old woman who has never been able to conceive, but God says, is there anything too hard for me? You'll see Abraham. Sarah will give birth to a son. In Matthew 19, verse 26, Jesus said to his disciples, with man this is impossible, but with God all things are possible. Job, chapter 42, verse 2, Job says, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours will be thwarted. Luke 1.37 says, For nothing will be impossible with God. So if we are people that believe the Bible, we ought to agree with that principle and we ought to live in light of that truth. Right? There's nothing that is too difficult for the Lord. I believe Jeremiah 32 gives us four reasons why there is nothing that is too difficult for the Lord. And the first one is this, is because God is the one who rules nations. Nothing is too difficult for the God who rules nations. As the Babylonians came to capture the city of Jerusalem, they thought that they were doing exactly what they wanted to do. They thought they could pretty much get away with anything. They had conquered all kinds of lands, and they thought, here's just another one, let's add this to our list. This isn't how the Lord saw it. The Babylonians were nothing more than an instrument in God's hand. They were doing only what God allowed them to do, and this is exactly what Jeremiah told the king of Judah. Look at verse 3. 
Thus says the Lord, Behold, I, God says, I am about to give this city into the hand of the king of Babylon, and he will take it. This is my doing, because I am in control of the nations of the world. Look at the world situation today. Aren't you glad that God is in control of the nations of the world? That he still rules from his throne? We see that so often in the Old Testament. Several years after this event, the people of Judah were captives in Babylon. And King Nebuchadnezzar, the one who was involved in the capture of the city, came to understand in a very difficult, trying way that God's the one who controls the nations. Daniel tells us about it. Daniel chapter 4. As King Nebuchadnezzar was walking on the roof of his palace in Babylon, this is what he said in Daniel 4.30. He said, Is this not Babylon the Great, which I myself have built as a royal residence by the might of my power and for the glory of my majesty? Now, I would call that a fairly arrogant man, right? I've done this. This is mine. I am the king. And Daniel goes on to say, While the word was in the king's mouth, a voice came from heaven saying, King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is declared sovereignty has been removed from you. And you will be driven away from mankind and your dwelling place will be with the beasts of the field. You will be given grass to eat like cattle. And seven periods of time will pass over you until you recognize that the Most High is the ruler over the realm of mankind and bestows it on whomever he wishes. What is God saying to him? He's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, you really think this is true? You really think that this is all yours? Sovereignty has been removed from you. And verse 33 says, Immediately the word concerning Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled, and he was driven away from mankind. He began eating grass like cattle. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. Can you picture what that man must have looked like? Eating grass. Claws like a bird, feathers growing from his head. Do you think that had an impact on the life of Nebuchadnezzar? Verse 34 of Daniel 4 says, But at the end of that period, I, Nebuchadnezzar, raised my eyes toward heaven, and my reason returned to me, as if I was nuts to think this. And I blessed the Most High and praised and honored Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion, and His kingdom endures throughout all generations. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. But He does according to His will in the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth, and no one can ward off His hand or say to Him, What have you done? Who is going to say that to God? Who are you to do what you've done? And so this king, 
who thought he ruled over the nations of the world, came to understand that God is the one who rules over nations, and it changed his life. It changed his life. And this is why Jeremiah was willing to buy the field of his cousin. Because God had made a promise that lands will be bought, fields and property will be bought in this land again. And Jeremiah says, Lord, you're the God who rules over the nations. I believe you. I am going to stand on the truth of your word that there is nothing, absolutely nothing, that is too difficult for the Lord. What is secondly, nothing is too difficult for the God who commanded creation. When Jeremiah finalized the purchase of his cousin's land, he gave the deed of purchase to Baruch. And he asked him to store it in a clay jar. Verse 11, he says, Then I took the deeds of purchase, both the sealed copy containing the terms and the conditions in the open copy, and I gave the deed to Baruch, the son of Messiah, in the sight of the people who were watching there, and he put those deeds of purchase into a clay jar. Verse 14, he says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, Take these deeds, this sealed deed of purchase, this open deed, put them in an earthenware jar, that they may last a long time. Verse 15 then, For thus says the Lord of hosts, Houses and fields and vineyards will again be bought in the land. Now, there's an important reason why Jeremiah did this. Philip Ryken says, Preserving the title to the property was an act of faith. When Jeremiah signed and sealed the deed, he was banking on God's ability to deliver on his promises. To buy land overrun by the world's conqueror and then to take elaborate care of the title deeds was a striking affirmation, as solid as the silver that paid for it, that God would bring his people back to their inheritance. Even though Jeremiah would not live to see that day, he made sure that the documents would be around to prove that God was faithful to his promises. Put these things in an earthenware jar. Preserve them so that in the days to come, people will see that God is faithful to his word. So after he gave these deeds to Baruch, then Jeremiah prayed. And he began in his prayer to refer to God as the one who created things. Verse 17, Ah, Lord God, behold, you have made the heavens and the earth By your great power and your outstretched arm, nothing is too difficult for you. Now, when we think of creation, think of the mighty power of God. Think of how he created everything out of nothing, right? Romans 4.17, God calls into being that which does not exist. Hebrews 11.3, what is seen was not made out of what was visible. In other words, it was made out of nothing. You know, we boast about our technology today, don't we? In our, in our world, oh, we are, you know, we are so smart. Look at all that we can do. Look what we can build. Look what we can make. Look what we can do. 
We are able only to make something out of that which exists. We don't make something out of nothing. God did that. And how did he do it? He spoke it into existence. Read again Genesis chapter 1. How many times do you see the phrase, God said, and it was so, right? He spoke it into existence. I love Psalm 33, verse 6. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. And by the breath of His mouth, all their hosts. He gathers the waters of the sea together as a heap. He lays up the deeps in storehouses. Let all the earth fear the Lord. Let all the inhabitants of the world stand in awe in Him. For He spoke. And what? And it was done. He commanded. And it stood fast. That's the Big Bang Theory, right? God spoke and bang, it happened. (laughs) He spoke. There it was. And I believe the biblical teaching of creation is something that we really need to emphasize today. Not just because of evolution. Certainly because of that. Because that is just being poured on us like it's fact. Also that we need to emphasize creation because that encourages us as believers when we are reminded of who God is. Spoken into existence. Everything out of nothing. There's nothing too difficult for him. Abraham believed that. In Romans 4 verse 17 it says that As it is written, a father of many nations, I have made you in the presence of him whom he believed, even God who gives life to the dead and calls into being that which does not exist. Hezekiah, the king, believed that as well. 2 Kings 19.15 says, Hezekiah prayed before the Lord and said, O Lord, the God of Israel, who are enthroned in the cherubim, you are God. You alone of all the kingdoms of the earth, you have made heaven and earth. Now, O Lord our God, I pray, deliver us from the hand of the kingdoms of the kingdoms of the earth, that they may know that you alone, O Lord, are God. I think of the psalmist, Psalm one twenty one, right? I lift up my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? What's the answer? My help comes from the Lord who made heaven and earth. Don't we need to be reminded of that? Where does my help come from? Where does your help come from? It comes from the one who has made heaven and earth. And there's nothing that is too difficult for him. Now, does this mean that everything we pray for, everything we ask God to do, he's going to do exactly what we ask him to do? You know the answer to that, don't you? No. He's not going to take every problem we face away. But if he doesn't take it away, he's going to give us the grace Walk through that, right? I think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. He said, I pleaded with the Lord three times to to take this from me. And what did God say to him? He said, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power 
His almighty power is made perfect in Paul's weakness. So God can certainly remove the, the trial, the trouble, whatever it is we're facing. But if He chooses not to, He is still able to do what we need to, to make it through. His grace is sufficient. So nothing is too difficult for the God who commanded creation. Thirdly, nothing is too difficult for the God who controls nature. As Jeremiah continues his prayer in verse 18, he describes the Lord as the great and mighty God. The Lord of hosts is His name. And then he goes on to recount all that God had done for His people in Egypt. Look at verse 21. He says, You brought your people Israel out of the land of Egypt with signs and wonders and with a strong hand and with an outstretched arm and with great terror. It's as if you can't think of enough ways to describe the awesome power of God. And you know what He did in Egypt, right? Water He turned into blood. Frogs that covered the whole land of Egypt. you imagine that? turning dust into little gnats. Aren't they great in the summertime, right? Those little gnats. He took soot from a kiln and produced boils. He sent hail and locusts and darkness. And you know what all of those things have in common? God's control of nature. That which He has made is that which He Controls, right? Psalm 135, 6 and 7 says, Whatever the Lord pleases, He does. In heaven and in earth, in the seas and in all the deeps. He causes the vapors to ascend from the ends of the earth. He makes lightnings for the rain who brings forth the wind from His treasure. Who's in control of the weather? The one who made this earth, right? I'm not going to live in fear of the future because God is in control of the future. He rules the nations. He made the world. He controls nature. Why should I ever live in fear when I serve a God like that? I read about a storm that took place in the prairie many years ago before there were electric lights. Windows were blown in and the, the candles were, 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 were not burning and, and mom and grandma and the kids were huddled together and all of a sudden little Walter was missing, 11-year-old Walter, couldn't find him. And they were panicking because they couldn't really light a candle. They're searching for him. Finally, they found little Walter sleeping in his bedroom. And his mother came up and says, How can you sleep at a time like this? <laughs> and little Walter said, Grandma told me that God would take care of me. So I thought I might as well go to bed. <laughs> yeah. Isn't that the confidence we can have in the Lord if He is who He says He is and we believe that? He'll care for us. He'll provide for us. There's no need for fear. Does God's, con God's control of nature make a difference in your life? It ought to. It ought to. 
But then finally, and here's the, here's, here's the, the, the greatest part of this whole uh, chapter, nothing is too difficult for the God who provides salvation. For the God who changes hearts. That's the greatest miracle of all, is when God changes a sinful heart, isn't it? You bet it is. If we wonder why God used the Babylonians to come upon the land of Judah to, de- to destroy Jerusalem, if we wonder why God did that, well, this passage tells us why. Look at verse 31. This city, God says, has been to me a provocation of my anger and my wrath from the day that they built it even to this day so that I should be, it should be removed before my face. God is saying, this city has provoked me ever since it was built. How? Verse 32, because of all the evil of the sons of Israel and the sons of Judah, which they have done to provoke me to anger, and it was so all-encompassing, he says, they, their kings, their leaders, their priests, their prophets, the men of Judah, the inhabitants of Jerusalem, all of you, everyone, he said. Verse 33, they've turned their back to me and not their face, though I taught them. Teaching again and again, they would not listen and receive instruction. But they put their detestable things in the house which is called by my name to defile it. Actually taking the idols of the world and bringing them into the temple and worshiping there in the house of God. Verse 35, they built the high places of Baal that are in the valley of Ben-Hinnom to cause their sons and their daughters to pass through the fire to Moloch. So you wonder, why did God bring judgment on Jerusalem? Why did He send the Babylonians against them? It's pretty clear, isn't it? From the time that Jerusalem was built, for all that time He said, you have provoked me. Wrath and anger. The only thing we might wonder about is why God didn't bring judgment sooner. He waited. He sent those prophets over and over and over again. And they mocked the prophets. They rejected the prophets until Second Chronicles said there was no remedy. And God brought in the Babylonians. But notice then what, what's going to happen to these people. Notice the change that God was going to bring into the lives of these people. Verse 36. Now therefore thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning this city of which you say, Jeremiah, it is given into the hand of the king of Babylon by sword, by famine, and by pestilence. Behold, God says, I will gather them out of all the lands which I have driven them in my anger and my wrath and great indignation, and I will bring them back to this place. I will make them dwell in safety. They shall be my people, and I will be their God, and I will give them, I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Verse 40, I will make an everlasting covenant with them, that I will not turn away from them, and I will put the fear of me in their hearts so that they will not turn away from me. 
And I will rejoice over them to do them good and will faithfully plant them in this land with all my heart and all my soul. Think of the change. In those verses, verse 28 to 35, it speaks so clearly of God's righteous judgment. Righteous judgment. And then you come to verses 36 to 44, and it speaks of God's mercy and grace, His salvation. It seems so unexpected, doesn't it? That God would restore people like this. One author says, Jeremiah's response to God's judgment seemed to be the logical one. As far as Jeremiah could tell, there was no hope for Jerusalem. But then God changed the subject by saying something totally surprising and completely unexpected. God moves from sin to salvation so quickly it's hard to keep up. All these verses of judgment and then God says, I love these people. And I'm going to bring them back. And I'm going to change their heart. And they're going to worship me. And I'm going to provide for their needs. So think of it. The ones who had spurned him, the ones who had provoked him, would receive mercy and he would perform in them the greatest miracle of all. He would change their hearts. He would save them. Verse 39, And I will give them one heart and one way that they may fear me always for their own good and for the good of their children after them. Philip Ryken says, Where is the logic in this? How could a people guilty of offering incense, libations, and even their own children to other gods become the Lord's people again? The power of God in the punishment of sin makes perfect sense. That's justice, right? What else could sinners who live in rebellion against God possibly deserve except to be banished from His presence? Then he asks this, but what is logical about the grace of God? Where is the logic in the free grace of the gospel for guilty sinners? Where is the logic in God sending His Son to die on a cross or in adopting His bitter enemies as His own sons and daughters? Such grace seems illogical, almost impossible. Then he says that the only reason it is not possible is that there is nothing impossible with God. It just seems like, why, oh God, would you be so merciful to people like that? But then we have to ask the question about us. Why would God be so merciful to us? Why would He love us? Why would He give His Son for us? Because we are sinful as well, aren't we? There's only one answer. That's the mercy and grace of God. Poured out upon sinful people like you and me. And that's why we celebrate Advent. That's why we celebrate Christmas. Is that Jesus came to be our Savior. Because we need to be 
forgiven. I am certain that there were many believers in the first century church that thought it would be impossible for Saul of Tarsus ever to come to Jesus. Blasphemer, persecuting the church, a violent man, but there is nothing too difficult for the Lord and He transformed this violent, sinful man into a new creation. Paul himself describes it, 1 Timothy chapter 1, Even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor, yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, among whom I am foremost of all. I've often wondered, (laughs) amazed at that statement. He didn't say that I used to be the worst. That we could understand, right? Clearly. I mean, you were violent. You were a blasphemer. He still says, this is what I am. I'm still a sinner. I still have a sinful nature. I still struggle with temptations and so forth. But what does he go on to say? Yet for this reason I found mercy, so that in me, as the foremost, Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example. What? Of what? For those who would believe in him for eternal life. There's no one that can say, I am too sinful. I am too lost for God to save me. Paul says if He can save me, He can save you. And that's what God showed in this 32nd chapter of Jeremiah. These people that had despised Him and provoked Him, yet God provided salvation for them. And that's what we can rejoice in today because the greatest Miracle of all is the miracle of salvation where God changes a sinful heart, a selfish heart, into a believing heart through the power of God's Word by His Spirit. Do you doubt that God can save someone like you? Is there a problem in your life that appears to be impossible to solve? Is there some person you know that you would say that person is absolutely hopeless? The Lord just might surprise you. He may work in such a way that you stand in awe of His power, His glory, His grace. If there's one thing that you can be sure of, it is this. There is nothing that is too difficult. Lord Jesus, we thank You for who You are. You are the God who controls the nations. You are the God who commanded creation. You're the God who has control over that which You have made. You are the God who is able to save even those who have despised You and turned their back on You. 
Lord, would you do your work in us today? Encourage us with this wonderful truth repeated many places in Scripture that there is nothing, nothing that is too difficult for you. We pray these things in Jesus' name and for his sake.